Time for the American Farmland Owner interview. This week, we're talking to Monty Shaw. He is the Executive Director of the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association. Thanks for the time, Monty. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. All right, Iowa farm boy, let's talk about your background a little bit. So you're surrounded by corn and beans as a kid, southwest part of the state. What, what was it that kind of connected your present day career with that boy growing up on the farm? You know, what's funny is uh, having grown up during the 80s farm crisis, we weren't really encouraged to stay on the farm. And I actually got involved in politics at a young age. Don't really want to remember those years, but but uh, uh, I was looking for an off-season job one time and, and took a job in the biofuels industry out in Washington, D.C. It connected to Iowa, connected to people I was working with, like Chuck Grassley, Senator Grassley. And obviously, having had that background, it, it made a lot of sense. And what I thought would be about a one-year job in between political gigs uh, ended up, here I am, this is now, I'm in my 25th year. So kind of backed into it. But I, I have to say, I've really enjoyed it because because of that background. I mean, it was not pleasant in the 80s. Um, you know, I used to hop on the school bus from where we lived in the country on the farm and go to school. And I went by a billboard that was a 1-800 suicide hotline specifically for farmers. Um, it was it was not a fun time. And then, you know, you hear the farm crisis of the 80s, people forget the 90s really weren't any better. We were hmm. still producing corn for 280 and selling it for 230. Um, and then we had to go get a government check to stay in business. We just had better farm support programs in the 90s than we did in the 80s. It really wasn't until the biofuels boom of the early 2000s that we pulled rural America out of that stagnation. So I have to say, while it was not necessarily my plan, I really, looking back, it's been very fulfilling to be a small part of an industry that's really had a positive impact on rural America. And do you still have family members who are farming? We do. I, ironically, um, my dad uh, got out of farming about 34 years ago, and we kept the land. Uh, he, he ended up going into a different industry. He retired, did a couple projects, got bored. So two years ago, uh, we, we took out a loan, bought a bunch of equipment, and I'm now officially a farmer again. Now, what that means is I get to drive the grain cart at harvest. Okay, My brother and my dad, who still live down in Shenandoah, uh, they do the bulk of the work. I need to give credit to them. But uh, but I go back and help with harvest. So um, it's funny, you know, 32 years went by and I was still have the same job now I did when I was in high school. But the equipment's gotten a lot bigger. There's a lot more I can screw up now in a hurry. I'll tell you that much. Uh, corn and beans again. Yep, we uh, we just do row crop corn and corn and soybeans. So I uh, do a, basically a 50 50 rotation down there. A lot of terraces, a lot of hills uh, for the for my friends up here in Central, and particularly as you go further north in Iowa, um, you know they they would not have a clue how to how to farm, and we would be bored out of our mind. You know, it, you know, wait, you can go how far in one direction <laughs> the straight line? You can actually, you know, all that GPS and auto steer, uh, it won't even turn a combine tight enough to stay inside of some of our terraces. So we we uh, it's a different different way, but that's okay. But I would ex expect that that as you look out now as a grown-up, if you will, you know, back at those years as a kid, knowing how tough it was for your for your folks to get through the '80s, that has to stick with you. That has to that has to you've got to feel a sense of responsibility, right? Like you got to make this work. Yeah, and you know, one great thing about kids, and I think is that we see this as we're older. 
kids are so resilient. You know, at that time, I didn't really know anything different, right? I mean, that that was my experience. I didn't, you know, then as you get older, you realize, oh, wow, that wasn't normal, right? That was not typical. That was a really tough time. Now, I was lucky. We did not lose any of our land at that time. Um, I did not go to bed hungry. I had, you know, shoes on my feet. So I'm not, I'm not complaining. But, you know, we didn't go a lot of places. There was, you know, vacations. What's that? You know, you might have gone to Worlds of Fun in Kansas City for one day and you thought that was the most awesome thing in the world. You didn't realize that other kids did other things. Um, so, so um, you know, looking back, um, again, while I didn't actually intend to get into it, um, I've always, you know, even when I was in politics, I know this sounds cheesy, especially in today's political world, but, you know, you wanted to do something good. You wanted to help. There was a, there was, you know, I, I'm old enough that there was a, a sense of service to it. And, and, it, and, it, and um, so I think, you know, once I transition into this, it's important. And, and I don't know if we'll have time to get into this later, but um, I really feel that we're at a, a fork in the road where we're going to make some decisions over the next two or three years, really maybe even over the next year, that is going to send us down a path back to the overproduction stagnation of the 90s, or we're going to embrace some new market opportunities and really set ourselves up for, for literally decades of prosperity. Um, and and I'm, a, I'm a little scared. Uh, you know, a year ago, as I talked to farmers, you know, we've been three good years and really 20 good years driven by ethanol um, uh, in general. I mean, obviously some ups and downs in there, but but there was a there was a I was picking up a sense of complacency. Um, now I'm starting to see farmers are like, hey, wait a minute, you know, corn's dropped two bucks in the last year, the single largest drop in a year for over a decade. And they're seeing these uh, government reports. They're called WASD. You know, these government reports are coming out. And it's like, oh wait, we're at two billion bushels of carryout. We're going to be at two point five. We're going to hit three billion bushels. Those are not good numbers. Those are the numbers that send the price of corn back below the cost of production. I, I grew up during that time. I do not want to go back to that time. And, and I think we have tools in our toolbox to avoid it. So so when you talk about a sense of responsibility, um, I have been out there. You know, I I don't want to be like, you know, the person who's out there always saying the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And I and I haven't been for, you know, 24 of my 25 years uh, in this industry. But in the last year, um, if we hadn't been in three years of drought and if Russia hadn't invaded Ukraine, what we're seeing over the last six to nine months would have been happening over the last three years. And so we really do need people to say, hey, um, stocks went up during a drought. Prices dropped the largest they've ever dropped in a decade during the end of a three-year drought. And it's not necessarily the end, but you know, after three years of drought. So those should be bright, flashing red lights of, hey, we, we're, we're not in a stable situation right now. You've made a couple of, um, you know, kind of remarks about your time in politics. <laughs> Having said that, though, and, you know, you you, you worked in uh, state of Iowa campaigns, you worked on presidential campaigns as, you know, caucuses come through town, you ran for Congress once. But that back, <laughs> which was crazy, you had six of you running in that congressional race, and it was just had to uh, nobody nobody clinched it on election night. So I'm pretty sure that's where the hair went uh, as you went through that experience, right? Yeah, uh, that that might have been dealing with the EPA for the last 25 years too. <laughs> but but that's got to give you a sense of of both knowledge and frustration, right? Because you've worked in D.C. 
and so you know how the process can work and you unfortunately knows how know how the process works right now <laughs> or, yeah. do, or or doesn't work yeah that's probably more accurate you know i do think having come from that background it helps me in my current job because i kind of you kind of understand what motivates candidates um now look i've dealt with candidates even in iowa um i think we've been pretty blessed that the folks that have actually been elected are doing it for the right reasons I've definitely dealt with candidates who were running not for the right reasons in my old school way of thinking about things. Um, but I think it helps me understand how to how to frame issues and how to approach them. You know, they want to help, but they also have their own political, you know, life to consider. So, um, you know, we've been able to do that on a bipartisan basis here in Iowa and, and had lots of success. Now you might say, well, it's not Iowa, you're number one in corn, you're number one in ethanol. Of course, it's going to be that way. But but there are plenty of people uh, elected to Congress from states that border Iowa that are also corn states that are not, you know, strong. They might, what I call maybe a little bit more lip service. You know, yeah, I'm pro-biofuels, but they, they don't want to spend any time or effort on it. You know, we work very hard to work with not just elected officials, but the people they talk to, the farmers, the ag groups, the you know, even the bankers, the economic development people, to make sure they understand just how vital renewable fuels has been and can be to our economy so that, you know, when push comes to shove, oftentimes it is an Iowan in Congress who steps up and leads the fight when there, when there needs to be one. Uh, and as far as Congress, yeah, I mean, I was out in D.C., you know, and helped work when we passed the very first renewable fuel standard back in 2005, which was kind of the, a couple of things happened. There was this uh, gasoline additive called MTBE, which was polluting water and big states were gonna ban that. And at the same time, we started working on this concept of a renewable fuel standard. And when in 2003 to five as, as MTBE got banned and then we were able to pass um, the, the renewable fuel standard, that's what really just took biofuels in 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 rock you know and rocketed them into the, into the future and that's when we saw corn prices come up that's when we saw eight straight years of record farm income it was the first time that a lot of farmers had farmed for a market and not based on the government program that they needed to to have um so so i've seen it where people can work and do it now it seems like there's a lot of people in dc who i call them bumper sticker Folks, um, they they come out, they they know how to spew the bumper stickers, but if you know issues are complex and it and it's give and take, and you got to roll up your sleeves and be willing to put in time and effort, and 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 there's fewer of those people right now. There's a lot of people out there who who I think enjoy the the media fights uh, more than they do the policy. But what what makes me really sad is we have people all over, but also in the Iowa delegation who are willing to roll their sleeves and are willing to dive in and try to find a way to like, hey, this isn't working. How do we make it better? But the whole system is so jammed up right now. We don't run bills through committees anymore. We wait till there's, you know, I think what are the, you know, we, we've got our funding limits and we've got our debt ceilings and we've got our things and they wait till there's a crisis and they throw everything kind of hodgepodge, you know, five people in the back room and, and then they pop it out. And usually if something goes through what they call regular order through a committee process, through four floor votes, unfortunately, if, if people aren't trying to be productive, that kills things, which is why they don't do it. 
But if you used to, you know, be where you try to be productive and they, you know, yes, we'd fight over certain issues, but there were a lot of issues where we didn't have to fight. You're just trying to find the right policy. Um, things would get better. You'd have less unintended consequences than you have now. So it's it's frustrating that you could have a really good idea right now. You know, you used to go to Congress, you had a really good idea, a truly good idea that wasn't like super partisan. If you worked on it for four or five years, and it might be sad that it used to take four or five years, but you had a legitimate shot of getting it passed. Today, um, unless you get lucky and catch somebody's ear who can dump it into one of these omnibus bills, you know, forget about it. There's just, you know, I, I you mentioned I ran once. I think one of the best things the good Lord ever did to me was uh, not have me win that, that election. I had to beat my head against a wall by now. And you've gotten to spend a lot more time with your your son and daughter by staying at home and not commuting back and forth as well. Which I've enjoyed. I'm not sure they would. I wonder how they would feel about that. Yeah, two teenagers. teenagers right they now, may not so. think the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So this one of the big the biggest fights that you've had in recent years would be this year round sales of E15, the 15 percent ethanol yeah. blend, and the pushback one of the one of the pushbacks against it for years had been you can't sell this stuff over the summer it's gonna pollute the air add too much smog out there that's the epa has acknowledged that's that's not been the case yeah so you can get e10 but it's not been e15 so now the Biden administration, his EPA comes out and says, okay, we're gonna do year round sales. And this follows the urging of organizations like yours, plus a number of governors got together to push yeah. this. Having said that, it'll be 2025, <laughs> not 2024. And I'm curious where your head is even at here. So it's like, you sort of accomplished this, but it's not happening fast enough. So how do you process what's happening? Yeah, it's 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 one of those frustrations, which unfortunately is is all too common. So on one hand, and I don't want to minimize this. On one hand, the EPA has finally, you know, a year and a half late, almost two years late, has finally promulgated a rule implementing eight governor's requests. And it's really under the law, the EPA shall do it. So it's not really a request. The governors are given the authority under the Clean Air Act to uh, make some changes. And I'll dig into that a little bit here in a second. So they requested a change that, that they had the authority to do that should have been then implemented within 90 days. Shall do it within 90 days. That's what the Clean Air Act says. The EPA just didn't do it, and we fought them, and we and and this Iowa Nebraska sued them, and eventually, so just recently, we did get a final rule that does implement that change that will allow E15 to be sold year round in those eight states. But then they delayed it, even though they're a year and a half, two years late already. They delayed implementation by another year, and the 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 crux of that is we're happy that it, we have certainty in these eight states going forward. 2025 and on and in the future. So I don't want to minimize that that is good and that we're and that we appreciate that and we thank the EPA for for getting that done. Um, but by delaying it, they've left us in the cold on 2024. So by various hooks and crooks, we've been allowed to sell E15 year round since about 2019. We had a rule; it got thrown out and that came down under the Trump administration that did it uh, for the whole country. It got thrown out because of an oil. Uh, refiner lawsuit. Um, we then had a couple emergency waivers because uh, fuel supplies were low the last two summers due to the war 
Russia's invasion of Ukraine and different things. So we've we've been able to by you know Band-Aid here, Band-Aid there, sell E15 year round for the last several years, and we'll be able to in 25 going forward, but not this summer. So um, on one hand, yes, you know, check the box. Hey, we got that done. But now another to-do came on the to-do list, very high up, which is, okay, now we have to find a solution for the summer of 2024. Um, the, the Biden EPA could grant another emergency waiver as they have the last two years. But those really are, I mean, there are criteria you have to meet. They can't just say, oh, emergency. So we have to see how the gasoline supplies and other criteria are looking because we've been able to do it and we're going to be able to do it. You could even argue that they could just do something a little less uh, formal, which is called enforcement discretion, basically saying, hey, don't worry this year. Just just, you know, just do go it. ahead and do it. Um, and, and there might be some other authorities they have. So we have, you know, I don't care how they do it, <laughs> but they need to find a way because it's not fair to consumers. E15 is 10, 15, 20 cents a gallon less than the standard E10 blend that almost everybody uses. And then um, you've got retailers who have taken the time, the effort, sometimes investment to put E15 out there as an option for consumers. And what are they supposed to do for three and a half months this summer? Just put a bag over those pumps, leave the consumers out cold, leave their infrastructure sitting there, not, not generating any business. It's just, it's just stupid that we've been able to do it for um, several years and we're going to be able to do it. And we've got this three and a half month period in the middle of 2024, where right now today, we don't have a legal path forward. But I am confident, you know, it's hard to say I'm confident in government these days based on everything we said earlier. But, but I mean, this is so egregious that you just would like to think that if we work hard enough and we put enough pressure on that they'll, they'll come up for a way. I mean, who wants to take away the lowest cost fuel from consumers during the busy summer driving season, um, period? This victory is for eight Midwestern states. That leaves 42 other states that, that may not be able to sell E15 year round, and those consumers are left out, those retailers are left out. So we need to find a permanent solution. The easiest way to do that would be for Congress to pass a law that puts E10 and E15 on the same regulate, regulatory framework. If we do that, we're good to go. Um, otherwise, we're going to have to continue to fight this battle state by state. All now, right. I want to jump into a bunch of this, but because of your background out there, now you already talked about the process doesn't work like it once did, you know, going through committees and everything else. But seriously, and not being sarcastic, if you had a lead sponsor, let's just say it starts in the House, how long, in theory, what you just said, that scenario with a law, start to finish, how quickly could that happen if sides were cooperating here? Well, um, and I'm not trying to be flippant, but no, no, there are I mean, ways to solve things quickly if Congress has the will to do it. Yeah. So on one hand, you know, we've been actually pushing this boulder up the hill for a decade, literally a decade. We've been trying to get Congress to fix this regulatory quirk. Um, uh, so on one hand, it's like, oh, is there a quick fix? On the other hand, it could happen this week in a government funding extension. You, they, you would just need the leaders to come together and say, yeah, this is a common sense fix. We want to do it. The biggest problem is I talked about, you know, instead of going through committees and, and, and everybody has a shot, but the committee chairs 
still have a lot of power because you know when they get in these back rooms and they're and they're negotiating these you know funding extensions or whatever omnibuses many buses you know government extensions um usually you know you have the you have the leaders like the speaker senate majority leader but you usually have the chairman of these committees of jurisdiction involved too and our challenge has been that the chairman of the senate environment and public works committee which is the committee that a bill like this would have to go through that's the committee of jurisdiction is what we call it um is a senator named senator carper he's from delaware there's a small refinery in delaware that he apparently is very attached to. I, I'm not going to speculate as to why, but he, what I what I know is a fact is that he very much values their position on things. And this small refiner has said, block this bill because we want to get rid of all the renewables policies. So like things like we talked earlier about the renewable fuel standard that's been in law since 2005. They want to gut that in return for fixing the summertime E15 um, program. It is so crazy even the American Petroleum Institute, you know, quote unquote, big oil is supportive of this national fix because they don't want to dink around with these state by state fixes where you're going to have different rules in different states. They've just said, just solve it, just do it. So here we have agriculture, biofuels, ethanol, and even the uh, American Petroleum Institute all saying this is a common sense fix. They should be treated the same, fix it. But one small refiner who happens to be well-placed in the district, the state of the, of the chairman is blocking everyone else. That's just crazy, um, but that's what we're facing. So if Carper would move out of the way and say, hey, I'm not gonna stand in the way of this, it, it could be fixed in a matter of days. As it is, I, I don't know. I mean, we just have to keep working. Uh, in the meantime, we are going to reach out to other states. Every single governor in all 50 states has the legal right to do what the eight Midwestern governors have done, led by our Iowa governor, Kim Reynolds. She was really the spearhead for this. And, and I really do owe her a lot of credit uh, for, for not just doing it in Iowa, but for reaching out to the governors around and saying, hey, let's do this together. It was bipartisan. Um, I think it's four of each. Uh, I, think the, I think there's four of each governor, five and three, something like that. It's, so it's, it was bipartisan. It was the upper Midwest. And they and they move together, but any state who wants to give the lower cost option of E15, um, it might be because you're an ag state and you want to support farmers and ethanol and give lower prices to your consumers. It might be because you're a West Coast state like Oregon and Washington, and you have a low carbon fuel standard and you're trying to get carbon emissions down. Well, more ethanol means less carbon emissions, so you might want to do it. So we're going to keep going state by state, and hopefully that builds pressure. Uh, for the nationals. What does the uh, this three plus month gap here where E15, uh, unless something changes here, won't be year round, what does that specifically mean for corn demand, corn prices, do you think? Is there any way to ballpark that as you look at the growers? You, you know, I mean, you're talking about millions of gallons of lost sales. So you're talking about millions of bushels not being ground up for ethanol. So there would be an impact. But to be honest, the bigger impact is as long as this fuel is on again, off again in 42 states, um, retailers are not going to add it to their offerings. Why would you want to offer a product that you can't, you know, you're going to put fuel in an underground tank and have it be one of the nozzles that a consumer can choose. And then all of a sudden for three and a half months out of the year, the busiest driving time of the year, you can't offer it. That tank is wasted. That hose is wasted. So, 
I, I get, you know, I'm thankful for the retailers that have moved forward anyway. Uh, but I also understand why some retailers have been hesitant. So what, what it really is, it's not so much about what we'll lose in these three and a half months in 24. It's about what we've been losing for the last decade. I mean, by now, E15 should be the new normal. It should be the new E10. Uh, today, 98% of the gas we sell roughly is 10% ethanol blends. Um, if we'd have fixed this regulatory quirk a decade ago, we probably would have that much E15 being sold now. It's, it, it's higher octane and it's lower price. It's better for your car and it saves you money. So when it's in front of consumers, as you know, here in Iowa, it sells really well. Um, you know, 50% of sales, 70, 80, we've seen stations, 90% of their sales are E15. And so, um, and also as, as it's more well-known and, and more broadly available, then it becomes easier for consumers to accept it too, as opposed to when they only see it here or there and they're not really sure why. So it's, we're literally talking about if E15 became the new E10, the new normal, that would be potentially based on today's sales, 7 billion gallons of additional demand. Now we get uh, about three gallons a bushel, so divide that by three. I'm not real good at math, but it's over two. I know that. So you're talking about two billion bushels of extra corn demand. And oh, how much extra corn are we sitting on from last year's harvest? Two billion bushels. Gee, it's almost like this might help us out a little bit. So, um, you know, it's a real opportunity. Now that's on the upside. Now, some people would say, well, Monty, EVs are coming, electric vehicles and things. And these young kids aren't driving as much as us old guys. So, you know, gasoline demand is going down. Okay. But then the worst case scenario is it allows us to keep the current corn grind and the current ethanol production as we use more ethanol in fewer overall gallons over the next couple of decades. That's like the worst case scenario is that we would at least preserve the market we have. And the best case scenario is um, we're still using more liquid fuels than, you know, not everybody's bought an EV. We're starting to see signs that maybe not everybody wants to buy an EV. So if we can keep a lot of that current market, then this just goes up on top of it. So it's it's a big it's a big thing. I would say it, it is our best chance to drive demand for corn in the short uh, to medium term. And then as we look further out, things like sustainable aviation fuel um, can, if we embrace it, can really drive demand for the next, you know, in the end of the long term for decades. Um, because I know we have a little bit of time here, can I go back and just address why E15 isn't able to be sold year round? Yeah, You've for sure. Probably read stories that, well, it's because of smog concerns. That's not actually true. Um, and, and this is a little in the weeds, but I'll, I'll try not to go too in the weeds. Um, in the summertime, we regulate the volatility of gasoline. How, how likely is it to evaporate? And we have limits for that. And, and the standard limit in most of the United States is, is nine pounds per square inch. And I won't get in it, but there's a limit. Ethanol, when you add it to gas, it's low volatility itself. But when you add it to gasoline, the chemical reaction that occurs does make the blend a little bit more volatile. So a long time ago, and I think the early 90s, E10 was given a one pound waiver. So in other words, an E10 blend could be 10 pounds instead of nine pounds. When E15 was approved a decade ago, they never did that. When the Trump EPA tried to do that, the refiners sued and got it thrown out and said, no, Congress has to do it. And now they're blocking it in Congress. So what's happened is even though E15 is, is less volatile than E10, 
it has lower emissions. This this is the real irony. If you take a gasoline and you put 10% ethanol with it and 15% ethanol with it, the 15% blend will have is will have a lower volatility, which means it'll have lower evaporative emissions. It also has more ethanol, which has oxygen in it. So it's going to burn cleaner. So it's going to have lower tailpipe emissions. So it has lower smog-forming emissions than E10. And yet, through this stupid regulatory quirk, we're allowed to sell the E10 in the summer, and we're not allowed to sell E15. It's literally backwards to the science. And if you really thought that, well, no, I read it in a story, so it must be true, think about this. We also have uh, gasoline in the United States called reformulated gasoline. It's what the East Coast has to use, California, Chicago, Milwaukee, a couple of big towns in Texas, the areas where there is actually a smog problem, they have an even lower limit than the nine pounds. And they have to, and so that that gasoline is called reformulated gasoline. It's lower in emissions because it's lower volatility. It never had the one pound waiver for E10 because of the smog problem. So ironically, in those areas today where smog and emissions are the concern, you can sell E15 year round because E15 and E10 have the same regulatory framework. So the gas they bring in, you can blend with both. But in the areas where smog isn't a problem, you've got these two different regulations, and then they only supply the gasoline for E10 and not the gasoline for E15, and they freeze it out of the marketplace. What the governors did that the EPA just finalized that we talked about a minute ago was the governors used their authority to equalize those volatility standards. Once they're equal, we can blend either blend with the gas that's in the marketplace. So it's not about smog. It's it's literally about a quirk that occurred in the regulatory system that is being manipulated by some in the refining industry who want to prevent E15 because 5% more ethanol means 5% less gas. So I really appreciate that some like the American Petroleum Institute have said, yeah, we're going to lose a little market share, but it's just stupid and we need to do this and we need to create lower carbon liquid fuels to compete against EVs, but there are those in the refining industry that are still fighting it. So that's the challenge. Once you get through this, and I appreciate this isn't done yet, but once you once this E15 either comes in in, 15, in uh, 25, or if you can somehow get it through in 24, what's what's next for the industry? Is it is it RFS? Is it higher ethanol blend, for, blend uh, more available? What's next? Yeah, well, I started out and I mentioned, you know, how gratifying it was to be part of an industry that pulled us out of the stagnation of the 90s and really created a pretty darn good 20-year run. Yes, there were, you know, Mother Nature always throws you a few curveballs and world events and things like that. But we really haven't had a sustained downturn in rural uh, America since the biofuels boom in the early 2000s. But what are we seeing now? We're seeing those stocks climb up even in the middle of a drought, as I mentioned. We're seeing them climb up even when you have the breadbasket of Europe disrupted by a war. So what we are seeing is we backed ethanol out. We conducted a study recently, uh, well, we commissioned a study recently by some really smart people at Decision Innovation Solutions. It's on our website. And we we backed out ethanol. It says, hey, 1980 to today, so about 40 some years, what's been going on? And what's happening is corn production, because farmers, what are they? They're hardworking, they're creative, they're productive, they embrace technology. So they have, even though we haven't expanded acres, they've expanded corn production. And so corn production has gone up about 210 million bushels a year on average. Obviously, you know, Mother Nature makes the line a little jagged, but on average, 210 million a year. 
uh, bushels a year. Corn demand outside of ethanol, take ethanol off the table, during those 40 years has only grown 55 million bushels a year. That's livestock, exports, industrial, all other uses except for ethanol. So it's not surprising that, um, you know, after the 70s export boom popped, we, hit, we were in trouble in the 80s. And we were still in trouble in the 90s with overproduction, cost, you know, the price of corn below the cost of production because we were overproducing. And if you look back over 250 years of American agriculture, that's what you see. We create a new market and then we overproduce it. We create a new market and we overproduce it. Farmers are very productive people. Um, so in the 2000s, all of a sudden we were able to suck up that corn and, and, and really 20 years of that growth because we grew ethanol demand to where it's now, like I said, 98% of the fuel sold in, in, in the United States is E10. Well, the problem with that is now 98% of the fuel is, is E10. There's no more growth. And we're not and we're not growing gasoline demand. So we're we've for the last two or three years, we've had stagnant ethanol demand domestically. We have been able to bump up exports of ethanol to other countries, but not a whole lot. There's a lot, and we're in tariffs, uh, you know. Um, Brazil is really doing a lot to expand their corn and ethanol and their exports, and they're kind of acing us out on some markets. So I sit here today, and I, and if you project out another 20 years, we will have five to six billion bushels of corn looking for a home if we continue to plant, you know, around 85 million acres. If we want to bring that into equilibrium, we would have to take over the next 20 years, we would have to take 20 million acres of corn out of production. That's a $10 billion hit to farm income uh, each and every year Once you when you get to that big. That's not what we want to do. Um, so the other solution to keep corn prices at, at a high level or at a, at a, you know, above cost of production level is to create a new market. And this study looked at the sustainable aviation fuel. And this one's really interesting because the airlines want us to do this. I have talked to airlines where they are all but on their knees saying, please make sustainable aviation fuel. And I know there might be some people listening to this, watching this, who say, well, that's, you know, this all this low carbon stuff is silly. I don't support it. I don't want to do it. My message to you, if you're interested in agriculture, if you're interested in land values, if you're interested in farm income, is this. this we're not asking you to think it's a good idea or a bad idea. We're asking you to understand that our customers are coming to us saying they want a lower carbon product. So as a business, it is our job, if we want to stay in business, to provide products that our customers want. You know, you mentioned I have a, a, a teenager, so I've got a teenage daughter. If I owned a clothing store in a mall, I would probably stay in business longer if I stocked my shelves with clothes my teenage daughter wanted to wear, as opposed to the clothes I would want my teenage <laughs> daughter to wear. You know what I'm saying? So this is not, I, I, I have too many conversations where people are like, oh, you know, new green deal, carbon, good, bad. This is business. This is a, this is a market driven situation. The airlines want this stuff. It's not my job to tell my customer whether that's a smart decision or a silly decision. And we're talking about a 35 billion gallon market in the US and a 100 billion gallon market nationwide, or, uh, excuse me, worldwide. To put that in context, we pulled the 
rural America out of the economic doldrums of the 90s with a 14 billion gallon a year um, E10 market, 14 billion gallons. This is 35 if domestically and potentially 100 worldwide. This is the most massive potential new market for American agriculture ever. So what's the catch? The catch is they want sustainable aviation fuel. That means it has to be 50% lower carbon than the standard traditional jet fuel. Right now today, the corn ethanol that we produce, while it's much lower, let me make sure I, I'm clear on this, today's corn ethanol is much lower carbon than petroleum gasoline, but it's not low enough that when you take corn ethanol today produced at a, an Iowa plant, anywhere in the, there's only one plant in North Dakota that, that is the exception to this rule today. Um, all the other plants, if you take that ethanol and then you further refine it into jet fuel, because that's a very tight spec. You're talking about operating at 30,000 feet above ground and in cold temperatures, it's a very tight specification. You can't just pull over the side of the road. So, so it's, you're not putting ethanol in jet engines, you're turning it into to aviation fuel with further, it takes further energy and processing. So by the time you do that, you're no longer below that threshold to be considered sustainable aviation fuel. So if we want to unlock this 35 billion gallon a year market, we have to lower the carbon footprint of our ethanol. The single cheapest and easiest way to do that is through carbon capture and sequestration. We capture the, 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 the CO2 that comes off of fermentation. And instead of venting that into the atmosphere where the corn plant will suck it down next year, we actually capture it put it in a pipeline, send it to a formation where it can be put back underground permanently. If we do that one thing, we cut our carbon footprint of corn ethanol today in half, we now qualify for the sustainable aviation fuel market, and we've just opened up a 35 billion gallon a year market. So I really do think we're at this fork in the road where we're either going to start turning into rural England where, oh, we don't want to upset the nature of our cute little communities, and there's no economic growth. Farmers are going out of business. The average age is 75. And, and the young people are hopeless. Or we're going to do what American agriculture has always done, which is respect our markets, engage in technology, embrace it in a common sense and safe way, and continue to grow. Um, if we don't open up the sustainable aviation fuel market, um, and like I said, the key to that's probably carbon capture and sequestration. If we don't do that, I honestly don't see another market out there that will absorb that five to six billion bushels of new corn that we're going to be producing over the next 20 years. Um, we've got a study, you can dig into it, but that is that is that is my my main mission right now on the medium to long term is we really are headed into and, and you'll go, go Google it. You'll see all these stories out there about you know supplies up, prices down. We are entering a phase of structural overproduction of corn, just like we had in the 90s. And the solution to that is reduce corn acres, you know, dramatically reduce farm income, or create a new market. And luckily, there is a new market out there that not only exists, but that is begging us, is begging us to fulfill it. They have no other way to produce the amounts of sustainable aviation fuel they want without what, what's called ethanol to jet. We're going to do some with soybean oil and animal fats, but there's not enough of that. And then everything else that they can do from, uh, you know, wood waste and even some other more fancy things are multiples more expensive. So they really do want our product. 
And I think if we don't want to go back to the 90s, we need to embrace the technology to get into that game. Monty, appreciate the in-depth conversation. Thank you. Sorry, that's that's but that's I mean, that is going to be my life for the next few years, uh, I think, because and I really honestly think it's that important. I'm speaking from the heart here. Maybe some new other other new market will magically appear. But we've got one sitting out there that we can literally go grab a hold of. And and at the time when we're seeing corn prices drop, um, I hopefully people are starting to wake up and realize, OK, the 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 good run that ethanol gave us has has topped off. You know, we have nowhere else to grow in that market um, and, and farmers are going to do what they're going to do, which is be productive. So, you know, I want to open up another new market.